0: All right. So, for those of you who don't know, uh, James, the guy that does youth, he and Haley got married you know, like last year, and they went on this cruise right in and, the, and they were on that ship that we all heard about that was broken down in the middle of the ocean. That was them. So they gave them their money back and a free cruise. They just left this morning. So you can pray it doesn't happen again. <laughs> but they got a balcony room this time, just in case. That'd be so funny. Okay, so so this is the new decor we just finished. Uh, we just finished Noah, so we, creation to Noah, which is all about water, so now we change to this. Uh, this is supposed to feel like you're in a tent. Yeah? All right, all right, just, just making sure. A lot of people worked in this and all that kind of stuff. We actually had to move the screen back down because this is hanging. Anyway, uh, there are Bibles in the back. You don't own one. You can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes in all the communion tables throughout the room. If you have a smartphone, you download an app. It's called YouVersion. Uh, you click on Live. It'll bring us up by GPS. If you're having a hard time with that, you just type in like 934 and and It'll bring us up by your zip code in your phone as well. Uh the, the film in theology, the first one we started this Friday, it's a guy named Donald. Uh, Donald's doing this first one. And he decided to do this Mr. Magorium's Wonder and Point. I sound like Mr. McGoo. I to say Mr. Magoo, but whatever. And, and he decided to do this because he said it's a good family movie. It's adults and kids both can come and enjoy this movie. He said, like, when I was a kid, he said, you used to watch cartoons. And the cartoons had, like, kid humor, and then they had adult humor both. So everybody got to enjoy it. So he says, this is a movie that does that, so hopefully you can all come and enjoy movie together. I believe the youth ministry is going to have like, uh, their little snack bar going, Milk Duds, only a dollar. <laughs> <laughs> i got to tell you, if cookies were no more, I think I could subsist on Milk Duds because, because they're simply awesome. Uh, and also, if you signed up to go kayaking, apparently Lazarus, I said canoeing, that's all the same thing. We're he boat in the water, right? Whatever. Uh, if you signed up to go kayaking, they're postponing that. Basically, the, we're trying to get enough money to cover the guide's cost that's going to come and do it, and we didn't have enough people to do that, so we're going to postpone it until we do. One of the guys who was going actually i just had knee surgery last week, so he and his wife pulled out and stuff. But there you go. Why don't you guys stand there? You're reading God's Word. Uh, this, is, this is my third service today. 1 Peter, this is um, chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. It says, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would teach us to be a people who do place our full hope and faith in who you are and what you have done, how you have called us and how you have saved us. We ask that our lives would be a great representation of your glory in everything that we do so that your name is lifted up. Amen. Have a seat. So we're in the book of Genesis. Uh, this is week 20. If you have a Bible, you can open to Genesis chapter 11. Uh, this is going to be a long message today. Ryan was not kidding. This is going to be long. I'm going to hit a lot of stuff that I don't think I've really heard a lot of people talk about in churches before. Maybe they're too afraid and they want to stay away from it, but I'm just going to throw it right out there because I want you to know who we are as Element. I'm going to try to slow down. I, it's, it's long enough that the last two services I spoke really fast, which is like faster than normal. So I'm going to try and... Yeah. Whoa! Yeah. Thank you, apparently. All right, so I'm gonna try and slow down a little bit for this one. I may get excited and speed up, then I'll try and bring it back down see how this goes. So far in Genesis 1 and 2, God creates everything good. He places man in that good creation. Genesis 3, man comes along and messes it all up like we always tend to do. Uh, Genesis 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, sin increases on the earth. God brings judgment, uh, sends a flood, puts Noah in an ark, brings about again restitution of relationship with Noah again, makes covenant with Noah. Uh, Chapter 10 and 11, society begins to rebuild in a place called Babel. And Babel is where you meet a guy named Abraham. Now in his Certain people show up as prominent. We remember their names because they're that prominent. Well, other than Jesus, the guy we get to today is one of the most prominent in religious history. Abraham is what is called a patriarch. Patriarch meaning father uh, or family and ark meaning leader. He is the patriarch that begins a brand new family, a new nation, a new lifestyle. His life becomes the pattern that ensuing generations are called to follow and to imitate. And when we get to some of the stuff later in Abraham's life, you're going to be like, Really? That? It's... God chose him. It's okay. Uh, Abraham starts off as Abram. His name is Abram, meaning your father is exalted. God later changes his name to Abraham, meaning father of a multitude. He is so prominent that you run into him first in Genesis 11, and he goes all the way through Genesis 25. Basically, we've gone from this 50 gazillion foot view of Genesis and what God is doing to one family. It's like just microcosm right in on that family. Now, Abraham is mentioned 300 times in the scriptures. He is listed in 11 of 27 of the New Testament books. Romans chapter 4 says he is a pattern and father of our faith. Three major world religions today, Muslims, Christians, and Jews, all trace to this guy. So I'll give you a quick review, and then we'll head off. In Genesis 11, we see that man is building this tower called Babel in this city. So they have a plan to build a city, and it is not inherently bad to be in a city and and build skyscrapers in a city. But the question is, why are they building the city? And it's so that they can have their own little piece of heaven on earth. As Eric spoke about last week, they're trying to make God in their image rather than realize we are made in the image of God and we're supposed to live how he calls us to. They're essentially trying to rule without God. And God's plan, a city, is a great thing. It should be full of lots of people, lots of different ethnic groups, different colors, people like heaven's supposed to be. Now, uh, this means for you and I, we live in a city called Santa Maria, unless you travel here from some other city, but then you live in that city, so it all works, metaphor works and all this, okay? God calls all of us, no matter where we are, to be primarily missional. The church should not be defined by the number of people we can get in one room at one time, by the number of people who are called to live on mission, God told his people, you are to scatter, to fill the earth. In Babel, they said, no, we're not really going to do that. We're going to stay together. This also happens in churches all the time. That's why we don't call our community groups small groups. We call them gospel communities because in small groups, nobody wants to scatter. They just want to get together, hang out with your friends. They don't open it up to anybody else. That is not what the scriptures teach. The scripture teaches a biblical mandate that we are supposed to scatter and invite all people in. and many times it takes god coming in and scattering people even when they don't want to so this is what god does at battle he comes down to their tower it's like oh yeah your legos are really nice Blink. earthquake bam the whole thing goes down and god isn't being mean god in doing this is loving all people he loves those we don't he cares for those we don't we are an exclusive people we're always trying to keep other people out so that we're more comfortable god is god who's calling people to himself so before Babel, at Noah, God comes down because of the sin. He just gets rid of everybody. So this one is actually not so bad in comparison. This is actually him being kind of nice. Imagine if you're a girl and you're in your click with your girlfriends, You're all sitting there talking and one starts talking Chinese and one starts talking Portuguese and one starts talking French. You can't understand them. So you've got to turn around and maybe go find some other friends. So God's causing them to scatter. Maybe if you're a guy and you've got a girlfriend or a wife, just one or the other, not both. Okay? <laughs> one or the other, and you're talking to them and all of a sudden they're like speaking another language. And you're probably going, well, they already do speak another language. What do you whatever. In Christianity, what you see is that many times we don't get what we want. We typically get what we need. God sends what we need. Babel reminds us that God is taking care of everyone because it's his choice. And he will do this now by blessing a guy named Abraham. So we're going to start in Genesis 11. You start with a genealogy. This genealogy, as you see human sin progress on the earth, their lifespans will get shorter. So Genesis 5 got you from Adam to Noah. And now this gets us from Noah's son Shem all the way to Abraham. Genesis 10, 11 starts Verse ten: these are the generations of Shem when Shem was 100 years old he fathered Arphixod two years after the flood I think that kind of means he was still bitter about the flood because he named his kid Arphixod maybe you think that's great anyway, and Shem uh, lived after he fathered Arphixod 500 years and had other sons and daughters when Arphixod lived 35 years he fathered Shelah I-, I made a joke about this last service and it didn't really go over so well but I, I kind of like the birth one it's like oh oh and he's all Shelah oh oh Shelah <laughs> it's really bad when I gotta explain the joke to you. So those of you who were born in the era, lived in the eighties, we know the song. Okay, whatever. And Arfik Saad lived after he fathered Sheila four hundred and three years and had other sons and daughters. When Sheila had lived thirty years, he fathered Eber. And she lived after he fathered Eber 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Eber had lived 34 years, he fathered Peleg. And Eber lived after he fathered Peleg 430 years and had other sons and daughters. When Peleg had lived 30 years, he fathered Rue. Finally, somebody names their kid a decent name. And Palug lived after He fathered Ru 209 years Had other sons and daughters When Ru had lived 32 years He fathered Sarug Which is I think Where we got the bad guy's name From Toy Story from And Ru lived after He fathered Saru 207 years Had other sons and daughters When Sarug had lived 30 years He fathered Nahor And Sarug lived after He fathered Nahor 200 years Had other sons and daughters When Nahor had lived 29 years He fathered Terah And this is Abraham's dad And Nahor lived after He fathered Terah 119 years Had other sons and daughters When Terah had lived 70 years He fathered Abraham Nahor and Haran Verse 27 Now these are the Generations of Terra. So, this is Abraham's dad. He is not a godly guy whatsoever. He probably has very low self esteem because he names his kid Abram, which means your dad is awesome. So, he names his kid. It's like if I had a kid and I named my kid Aaron's the best preacher ever. But well, what's his name? No, that's his name really really a little self-esteem much really is that what you got yeah okay so he worshiped uh, terror worships false gods joshua 24 verse 2 tells you this and joshua said to all the people thus says the lord the god of israel long ago your fathers lived beyond the euphrates Terah, the father of abraham and nahor and they served other gods so abraham starts in a family that doesn't worship god he probably doesn't even know who god is worshiping false gods and this should give us hope you may come from a horrible family that doesn't know who god is at all and god can make you into something new and different and God takes all people and changes and loves them and gives us hope. Terah fathered Abraham, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. Lot is a strange story. It'll take us a couple months to get through all the little things that go on with him. He's a little freakish. He moves to Sodom and Gomorrah. He impregnates his daughters. We will unravel the knot that is Lot in over a couple months. Thank you. Verse 28. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. Now Ur... Is Babylon. And so what you see is Abraham is living in Babylon. God's going to reach into this guy from the Babylonians to take somebody to reach all people of the earth. Abraham may have even been one of the guys trying to build the Tower of Babel. He is not a good guy. He's not a holy guy. He's not a Hebrew. Actually, they really think the word Hebrew came about from these people who are nomadic wandering around, and they called them the Hipparu, meaning the dusty ones, and that just morphed into the Hebrews. And so he's a regular dude worshiping false gods, just doing stuff on the earth. And when we think Abraham, you ever hear about him in any context, you're like, wow, Abraham. It all starts with a normal guy doing normal things. Verse 29, And Abraham and Nahor took wives the name of Abraham. Wife was Sarah. Sarah means princess, so she's hard to deal with. And the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now, Sarah was barren. She has no child. That's an important detail for Abraham's life. His wife is barren and she is old. Abraham is 75. She is 65. Barren means hopeless. But but Sarah is also very attractive, very attractive. She's 65 years old and hot. Later, two guys try and steal her away from Abraham. There's not a lot of grandmas who can say that. So she's got it going on. Verse 31, Terah took Abraham, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarah, his daughter-in-law, his son Abraham's wife. And they went forth together from Ur Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. When they came to Haran, they settled there. Verse 32, the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. So at this point, Abraham's got no dad, he's got a barren wife, worshiping false gods, and something happens. And that something happening is God seeks Abraham and God speaks to Abraham Genesis 1 through 11 is about creation Genesis 12 on is about God calling into covenant Abraham he is not an impressive guy it seems like God always starts with unexpected people in unexpected places doing unexpected things God doesn't grab the basketball star or the football star or the baseball star like we do oh let's stick him on a stage let him talk to us God goes and he grabs the guy with the barren hopeless 65 year old wife and he chooses to use him God chooses to use Abraham now in Christianity we use a fancy word for this we call call this word election. God elected to use Abraham. Now I'm going to teach you some theology this morning. For those of you that are theology geeks, you're like young and unmarried, spend all your time on the internet arguing about this stuff, this is our special holiday Sunday just for you. You're welcome. All right, next week is Father's Day. Today is your day, apparently. Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you I will curse. And in all you, all the families of the earth, shall be blessed. God shows up to Abraham. He speaks. He makes some promises. It is God who does this. Abraham did not even know who God was. Now, throughout the scriptures, there are various words that we use to talk about this. These are words like predestination, choose, elect, ordain. All of these things that come down to the idea that the decision of who is saved or how they become saved is and was determined by God before the foundation of the world. This is Ephesians chapter 1. One. And so I want, to, I want you to follow with me. I'm, I don't, I'm trying not to make this too heady for you. I'm going to try and make it easy to follow along, but I'm going to do my best to explain what that means in elements, context of our idea of predestination and election. I'm going to talk a lot about Abraham today. I'm going to talk about God's choice and what he does. So what we have done is there are three by five cards on all the communion tables throughout the room. When we are done today, you can write a question on there because I'm sure you may have some and put it in that little basket right there in front of the sound booth. And what I, w- I was going to come back and do an hour and a half long thing tonight let you come ask all your questions and explain this in more detail but our, our video guy said we need some video blogs so what we're going to do is we're going to do video blogs we're going to answer all of your questions if you'd like you can write your email address on the bottom and then when we get around to and we, 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 yours goes live we'll send you an email that says hey your question's now live you can you can see it on the website so when we're done because i'm sure you're going to have questions you know do that grab them all uh, if you have a Bible, you can open to Romans chapter 9. This is where we're going to be at for a little bit. And so we're going to talk about the means by which people are connected to Jesus. Now, this is described by various theologians in two very general categories. Okay? The first category is called monergism, which means mono, meaning one. This is called a Calvinistic or a Reformed position. And the second one is called synergism, meaning many, or in our case, two. This is typically called an Arminian position. Isaiah 53-1 asks this question, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Metaphorically speaking, to whom has God reached down for the purpose of saving? A monergistic position comes in and says it is a one-handed position that God reached down and God grabbed people and saved them through Jesus. A synergistic position, a two-handed position, says that God reached down His hand to lost sinners and they reached back to Him and took hold of God's invitation. And so God pulled them out of death and damnation, but He did so by their partnership with Him. I'll give you an analogy. It's like a swimmer who's in a pool. Is Jesus a lifeguard when someone's drowning that goes and pulls them out of the pool and saves them, or is he a lifeguard that takes a little life buoy thing and throws it out to the person in the pool and says, Grab onto that! Okay, you're saved. That's, that's kind of the difference between the two. Throughout the history of the church, these two positions have been widely debated. Uh, Origen is a guy who lived 185 to 254 AD. John Chrysostom lives 347 to 407, just as examples. Okay, just many more, but just those examples. And they originally said salvation is a two-handed event. Later, origin goes on to say, "No, it's one hand." And then he goes on to say, "No, God just saves everybody." And this position essentially says God looks down the quarter of time, saw those who would choose Him, and then predestined to choose them. So, election or predestination in this uh, position starts with us choosing God, and then God responding to our choice by choosing in His foreknowledge and seeing in advance who would then choose. Him, kind of like a cul-de-sac. You just kind of go around in circles with that. In 354 A.D., there's a man born named Pelagius. He had a single-handed view of salvation, but not like we're talking about. His, essentially, God doesn't need to be involved whatsoever. That we are not sinners by nature, that we can choose God or not. Therefore, to be saved, all we need to do is choose God. That's it. It's all your own doing. This is a heretical false position. It was condemned. He was condemned as a heretic. He has been ignored by the church for 1,600 years until most recently, and you get things like progressive theology or open theism, which are just, you're like, what? Right, there's a question. What does that even mean? Well, I'll answer it for you. Okay, you get to a guy, 354 to 430 AD. His name's Augustine. Augustine does have a bunch of hang-ups. I know that, all right? But it's over, almost impossible to overemphasize the influence that Augustine had on all of Christian theology and all of Christian history, all right? Uh, he originally held a two-handed position, but after studying the Scriptures, he comes to a one-handed position. And his position is that we are all sinners, that we have all turned from God, we have all run from God, we all deserve hell, and God in His mercy reaches down through Jesus and grabs some of us and saves us and gives us the gift of grace. He gives us hope. He gives us forgiveness of sin. He gives us a new heart. He makes new people. He does and we call this position single predestination that everybody has chosen hell and we bar that out by how we live our lives because when it comes down to our will and God's we usually we choose ours and go our own way everybody chooses hell and Jesus chooses to save some that's the position later Martin Luther comes along and he teaches a position called double predestination where God chooses heaven and hell for everybody but a single stance says that everybody has chosen hell and God chooses some out of that that is my position that is your elders position at element if it's broadly under the reformed theology Tradition, And I hope one day to make you all good, reformed, Augustinian, singular predestination people, because it's right. You can disagree with me, and that's okay, but you were predestined from the foundation of the world to be wrong. Okay, seriously, seriously, on this. Uh, you can disagree, and you can still be a member at Element. We want you to know what, what we believe and what we hold to. Uh, this view, this reformed view, has been held throughout the history of the church. It is a distinctive for Element. It is not meant to be a divisive thing there are certain things that we as element we will die for the deity of jesus christ we will die for that right there but if you want to come and argue about the rapture we're not even going to take a paper cut for the rapture okay if we go we go if we're here we're here whatever it's like what's your position on water it's wet okay that, that's my position on water that's that's what i got certain things are just out of my hands and so we can come in, we can disagree about this. I mean, we believe that if you, if you understand this position, it helps you to live in great freedom because it leaves everything in the sovereignty of God's hands. And we do what he calls us to do. We live how he calls us to live, and we rest it all in his hands. It is a great freedom, a great position of great freedom. And we're not going to fight over with it. You know, we can disagree and have fun in an agreeable way, but it is not meant to be divisive between us. And you will find people in element that are both positions in this and we will fight over open theism because it's wrong but we will you know and so what i want to do is i want you and i want to look at some things from the apostle Paul. Uh, Many mysteries of the Old Testament come to fruition in the New Testament. Paul is a man who taught the doctrine of election most actively and most vigorously and most completely in all of Scripture. I think the reason he does this is he experienced election most powerfully. He hated Christians. He is opposed to Christians. He murdered Christians until Jesus comes down from heaven, just like he did to Abraham, knocks Paul on his butt, beats him up, blinds him, gives him a new heart. He converts him and makes him apostle to non-Jews. God sends him out, and as a result, he loves Jesus and writes most of the books of the New Testament Scripture. He passionately and personally understands election because apart from it, there is no way in the world that man would ever experience the saving grace of Jesus Christ. And so you look at Paul. I think some people wrongly think when they when they think about election or predestination, they think, "Well, it's all in God's hands. I'll just take a nap and let Him take care of it." No. I mean, if that's what you think, you do not understand the whole idea of election or predestination and all of this. It is that you and I have great freedom to share the gospel anywhere we are. We don't have to worry about, "Oh, did I say it right? Did I stand on my head? Did I, did I do enough jumping jacks?" Do this? We rest. We say what God calls us to say, and we leave it in His hands. It gives us great freedom to live how He calls us to live. And so those who end up thinking it it just lets you take a nap miss the whole idea of the scriptures and the heart of God and the heart of Paul. I mean... Paul, in Romans 9, essentially says, My desire is that the Jewish people would meet Jesus, the Messiah. They would turn to him and they'd love him. He says his whole life is about proclaiming Jesus so as many as possible would become Christians. Romans 8, 9, and 10 all go together. It's preach the gospel. God's going to call, but you need to go preach the gospel. I mean, that's Romans 8, 9, and 10 in a nutshell right there. It all goes together. So the idea of election fuels evangelism. It never dampens it. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to answer the three uh, questions that most people ask about election and predestination. I'll do this in Romans 9 through the Apostle Paul. Again, if you have more questions afterwards, which I'm sure you will, three by five cards, put them in the back and I will answer all those later as well. So in Romans uh, chapter 9, the first question comes along is this. If many Jews through Genesis and all the Old Testament scriptures did not love Jesus, did God's word Fail. Did it fail? If Abraham and Isaac and Jacob were these patriarchs who lead to the coming of Jesus and the nation of Israel, and they had Moses and King David and all the prophets, and they have the Old Testament scriptures, they have the temple, the sacrificial system, the interceding priesthood, and all of that is to prepare for the coming of Jesus. And Jesus shows up, and some of them love Jesus, but most of them don't. Did God's word fail? And all that he intended to do throughout all of the Old Testament scriptures. Here's the answer Romans chapter 9, verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. Oh, whew, done, perfect, awesome. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. That's God saying that. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. And this means that it's not birth, it is new birth. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also Rebekah, who is that son's Wife. Had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election, there's our word, might continue, not because of works, sounds very one-handed to me, but because of his call. She was told the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. And we haven't gotten to these people in Genesis, so I'll explain this to you really quickly. Abraham has a son. His name is Isaac. Isaac has two sons named Jacob and Esau. They are twins in the womb of their mother. They fight in the womb, they fight outside of the womb, their descendants fight all the way to this Day. Paul says when they were in the womb before they did anything good or bad God predetermined he elected to use the younger Jacob to give him the blessing and the promise in accordance with God's providential decree Jacob was the one through whom Jesus eventually comes neither of these boys were chosen because they were good boys if when we get to the story you'll see Esau's a total Ewok looking knucklehead and Jacob is a full on mama's boy. Neither of them do anything good. It is God. And it's not that God actively hates Esau. It's that he chose to work through Jacob and bless him and save him. And he simply chose to let Esau go his own way in sin and get what he deserved. Esau gets what he deserved. Jacob gets grace. God has the absolute right to choose whom he will save and whom he will use. Jacob and Israel, individually and collectively have no right to demand that God bless or save them in any way, but God chooses in his divine sovereignty to love and bless individuals and nations and let others go the course of their own decision to get what they deserve. What you will notice throughout all the scriptures, whenever the word elect or predest, all these words are used, it's always in a positive context. It is always God is electing you for salvation. It's always a good thing. So it brings about question number two, which is this is God unjust to choose some people Abraham Noah you and I for salvation and not others so Romans chapter 9 verse 14 Paul answers this question what shall we say then is there injustice on God's part see that's the question right where it is and he goes on says by no means Whew, again, thank goodness it's there, we got the answer. For he says to Moses, and he goes back to the book of Exodus, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Sounds very one-handed. For scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he, meaning God has mercy on him, he wills. And this is the line people hate. He hardens whomever he wills. The question is, is God unjust to save some people and not all people? And so Paul points to the story of the Pharaoh. Now listen to all I to understand this so you'll, so you'll get it the Pharaoh was a man who ruled over a kingdom he was the most powerful and longest reigning empire up into that world of that day uh, he ruled literally as a God on the earth he was worshipped as a God he rules at the time of the Exodus over a few million Israelites and he was a cruel mean unjust oppressor and God says you know what I'm done with it and you're done with this tyranny so God raises up a guy named Moses and God does Moses go to the Pharaoh and say you are not God and the real God commands you to repent and to trust him and obey him and honor him and love him him and serve him and glorify him. And if you do not, he's going to bring judgment. And there will be a succession of plagues for every time you reject the offer of repentance from God. And it is here in the text that the Pharaoh's heart becomes a centerpiece for a theological debate. Nineteen times in the book of Exodus, it speaks of Pharaoh's heart. Sometimes it sounds very two-handed, very Arminian, like, and Pharaoh hardened his heart against God. Other times it sounds like a Calvinist wrote the book, and it says, and God hardened Pharaoh's heart. The question is, what does it even mean? Some people have this idea that there's like a light switch in Pharaoh's heart between hard and soft, and God's like playing a light switch rave, going, heart, <laughs> hard, soft, oh, hard. Like this, the, the whole time just playing along with Pharaoh in, in his heart. It says that, you know, and if God goes up and he flips the switch to hard and says, You got a hard heart, I'm going to punch you in the face. Well, that does seem a little bit unjust. It's like a father maybe over dinner gets enraged at his kid and drags his kid across the dinner table and then spanks him for spilling his milk. It's, it's that kind of thing. So here's my question Did God harden Pharaoh's heart? Yes or no? Yes. yes. And after you're like, I am not going to answer that question. Right? Okay. Yeah. Yes, most assuredly God hardened Pharaoh's heart. But the better question is, how did He harden Pharaoh's heart? And the answer is with love and grace and mercy and kindness and patience and compassion. Because God could have simply crushed. Pharaoh but you know what he does he keeps sending Moses here's another opportunity to repent here's another opportunity do you see the plagues they're getting worse do you see sin really does lead to death you see God really is God you are not God Do you see the people suffering because of your sin you see people are hurting because of your sin and ultimately a number of firstborn sons are going to die because of your sin including your own God as a wonderful God repeatedly gives to Pharaoh a sincere opportunity to repent and every single time Pharaoh's heart becomes increasingly hard Why? I think it's like Jesus says in the New Testament when he says you keep burning coals on the head of your enemy. That doesn't mean evil. It means you keep kindness on the head of those who hate you. You're constantly loving them like God does. God did harden Pharaoh's heart, but he hardens Pharaoh's heart by being completely unlike Pharaoh, he's being merciful and loving and gracious and kind and compassionate and patient. And Moses repeatedly goes to Pharaoh and repeatedly asks him to repent. And every single time Pharaoh declares, he he is not God, I am God. I will not obey, I will rule, I don't care the cost, I am the king of the world. Like Leonardo DiCaprio, I am king of my own existence. That's what he keeps saying. See, apart from God changing our heart, you and I are just like the Pharaoh. God comes to us through conscience and through the Holy Spirit and through Scripture. He convicts us of sin. He calls us to repentance. And apart from a new heart, our old heart just becomes increasingly harder and harder and harder and more stubborn and more religious and more self-righteous. In Romans chapter 2, verse 4, Paul says, Do you not know it's God's kindness that's meant to lead you to repentance? In Exodus 34, God reveals himself to Moses. And this is what God says about himself. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. That sounds like an unbelievably good God. And yet we are told, but who will by no means clear the guilty? God declares himself to be a certain kind of God that says, I will have mercy, and whom I have mercy, of compassion on whom I have compassion. God hardened Pharaoh's heart by being wonderful. If you are here today and you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, I will tell you this. Your heart is hard. Your heart is hard. And you think you're God and you reject God's invitation for salvation because you want to be your own little God. And your kingdom may not be as big as Pharaoh's, but you want to rule over it nonetheless. And there's judgment for that. And this is why every week we tell you about the gospel of Jesus Christ and say, surrender your life to Jesus. Third question, is God unfair? Is God unfair? I love when people ask me this question because my first answer is always, of course, God's unfair. If God was fair, he just torches us all and be done with it. <laughs> okay? But I know when people ask the question, is God unfair to save some people and not others? Paul goes on and he answers this question as well, starting in verse 19 of chapter 9. He says, You will say to me, then why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? Like if God didn't choose us to be saved, then how can he judge us for sinning and rejecting him? And so it goes on and it answers this. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what does molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay? to make out of the same lump one vessel for honor use and another for dishonorable use. And he says, what if God, what if... Okay. What if God, desiring to show His wrath and make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath, prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy, which He prepared be, uh, before Him in glory? This would be the elect, even as whom He has called, not from Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. So God is a multi-ethnic, multinational, multicultural, multiracial God. He says, as He indeed says in Hosea, He quotes Hosea chapter two, verse three: "Those who are not My people, I will call My people; and her who is not My beloved, I will call beloved." Then He quotes Hosea. 1-10. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called the sons of the living God. And he quotes Isaiah 22, verse 23. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sands of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved, for the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, he concludes with Isaiah 1, 9, if the Lord of hosts, the God over the angels, had not left us offspring, had he not saved some of us, we would have been like Sodom and like Gomorrah. Basically, Paul says, we as Jews, every single one of them would have been wiped out in just Judgment. And the concept here is of, is of clay and of potter and pots. He's using the analogy that the distance between us... And God is the same distance between a piece of clay and someone who molds something out of that clay. That's the difference. The metaphor appears three times in the Old Testament in Isaiah 29:45 and Jeremiah 18. And sometimes it refers to God making people for salvation or damnation. Sometimes it refers to God choosing nations to bless them and use them and not choosing others for blessing and service. But the big idea is that God is God and we are not, and we have no right to tell God that he's doing a good job of being God or not. Paul argues here for humility and trust. That you know what? We need to be people who actually trust God to be as good as he says that he actually is. But one reason people want to run for this position so strongly is that they don't really trust God to actually be as good as he says he is. We're like, oh, God can't really be that good. Oh, he can't really be that good to people. Yes, he actually can. Did you ever see the movie Bruce Almighty? At one point he decides, I'm just going to answer yes to everybody. And what happens? The world goes Crazy. This is why we have a God who is infinitely better than us and knows how to truly be God. Paul says, who do you think you are that you think you'd be a better God than God? Ambrosiaster, who is an early church father, says it this way, It is great indignity and presumption for a man to answer back to God, the unjust to the just, the evil to the good, the imperfect to the perfect, the weak to the strong, the corruptible to the incorrupt, the mortal to the immortal, the servant to the Lord, the creature to the creator. We need to trust that God is as good as he says as he is. Now, I don't know if you've ever had, uh, you know, little debates between you and your friends. If you get all weird and crazy like that, Armenian Calvinism, and it's like, you know, no, we pick God. No, God picks us. You can't pick God. You're wicked. Well, then God's mean. He's kind of running around the whole little cul-de-sac all the time. Really, in the end of this, there's only three options about who chooses who gets eternity with God. Okay? Number one is this. Satan chooses who has sins forgiven and eternal life granted. Uh, Anybody want to vote for that? Satan and demons choose who gets saved. Right, we'd all be screwed because we'd all end up going the way. Nobody gets grace that way. The second option is that we choose who is to be saved. We we choose that. I some people say, Well I think it makes sense that that we we choose this. Well, you know, if you take that to its farthest extent, like Arminianism does, I'll say, you know, what about the babies that are aborted in the womb? You know, one third of conceptions in America today. What about the little kids throughout the course of history die when they're one, two, or three years old? What about the people who are born mentally incapacitated, people in a vegetative state? What about people that have learning disabilities, can't fully understand what we're talking about? What about the old person with Alzheimer's who you say something to and two seconds later they forget it and they can't remember what you just said? What about the person who's in another country, and they're in some hut in the middle of nowhere, and they never heard about Jesus? If you're saying that to go and spend eternity with God, you need to hear the gospel, understand it, and choose him, well, then all those people are jacked because they didn't hear about him, and they didn't choose, and some of them can't choose at all. And the more important point in all this is that the result is that we all have, those of us that understand, we have chosen. We have chosen. We have chosen sin. We have chosen rebellion. We have chosen death. We have chosen rejection of God. We have all chosen to be objects of wrath. We have all chosen hell. We have, every single one of us. When God says, do this, we're like, no, I'm going to do this instead because I like this better. We have all chosen to go the opposite direction of God. So reform position says, do you really want to believe that we choose? Do you feel better believing that God chooses? Because God can choose a baby in the belly. God could choose a newborn infant. God could choose somebody who's never even heard about him and reveal himself through a dream or an angel or a miracle, whatever. What about the person who's mentally incapable of fully understanding? Well, God could save them too. The third position is that God would choose to save. That God in his mercy and grace would choose to save some. And this is a whole nother debate people get into. Well, well, what's that percentage? You know, is that some? Is that 100% or 1%? What is it? Well, you know what? Seriously? We should just live our lives glorifying and honoring Him and let God take care of the details in that. We just proclaim the gospel and all that we do in great freedom. I'll tell you, my wife had a miscarriage some years ago. She did the baby be about, about five years old. Uh, if you guys ever seen Mason running around here, it was right before that. It was right, right before Mason was born, so it was right before they happened. Anyway, I'm, I'm rambling here. Anyway, uh, what do I think happened to my baby? You know, what, what do I think? You know, there are there many in line? Well, unless you hear about the Lord Jesus Christ and you choose him, you go to hell. <laughs> really? Really? No. I, I believe that Jesus decides that. I have great faith that my baby is with Jesus because Jesus loved kids. He loved kids. I think that God would choose in mercy to save people and that doesn't make those he saves better than anybody else you look at abraham and what does god say god says you know i will choose you and you're going to be a blessing to the earth what did that mean? he was supposed to serve everybody those who are chosen and blessed become slaves of everybody else we are to give love and grace and mercy and life and hope to everybody we come into contact with because we are his And we are not our own. That God in mercy would choose to save some. And not only doing that, that he would come in human in human form as Jesus Christ, that he would live on the earth in humility, he'd be tempted as we are, yet was without sin, that he would go to the cross, that he would substitute himself in our place for our sins, that our God would die himself for the penalty of our own sins. And that he would rise from the dead and he would give salvation as a gift, not dependent on how well we pursue him, though we should pursue him, or how well we desire him, though we should desire him. And then God has given this invitation to everybody and we have all rejected it. No one takes Him up on it. So God pursues vigilantly, mercifully, compassionately, lovingly, continually. Ephesians 1 says, In love He predestined us. Election predestination, this is the love of God in action. It is not that God's lost in the forest and we've got to go find God. Oh, I found Jesus. It is that we are lost. And our great God comes and He finds and saves us. That's what it is. When you get to Abraham, what you will see... This story just explodes all over the map. And you will see Abraham lie, cheat, steal. He will play dumb. Uh, You look at this guy and you think, man, this this guy has imperfect faith. And yet he becomes the star of a new promise of God by God's own choosing. And you will be tempted to say, when you get through all this stuff in his life, you look at Abraham and you will go, he is such a loser. Why would God choose him? Why would God choose us? Why would God choose us? It's because he is infinitely good. And this should really bring you great comfort. And you may, you may sit there. Some people are like, oh, well, you know, am I, am I chosen to God? Pick? If you even ask the question, you're fine. You're fine. People who don't care don't even ask the question. You're, you're fine. If you believe you are called and you are saved, and you never need to worry about it because it is God who holds you. It is God who saw you and God who loves you and God who brought you home. We have nothing to boast about in that except that our God is good. Our God is good. And the question for us becomes, then, how will we love him back? Because he loved us this much, how do we in turn love him back in that great grace and mercy that he has shown to you and I? Because he will grow as in the people we're called to be, but in doing that, we become a blessing to the entire earth, just like Abraham. Our great God has been on a rescue mission from the foundation of the world to save his people. And that is the beauty of the gospel. Now, we're going to invite you this morning to come to communion. Uh, the bread's a little different this morning. They're, it's not hard. It's actually flat bread. And so you're going to tear off a little piece of that bread like Christ's body was torn and broken for us. You're going to dip it in the wine of the grape juice that reminds us of his blood that was shed for you and I as his people so that we can experience all the goodness and grace and truly become his people and live the life that he calls us to. The band's going to come up. Uh do a couple songs. Actually, we didn't need it. We, we cut one out the last couple services because I'm so long-winded today. <laughs> I guess we didn't need to do it at service, but we did, so whatever. Um, there'll be some deacons and elders in the back. And if you guys need prayer, if you don't understand something we talked about, or maybe you do, and, and it totally humbles you. This is a humbling position to actually live in that we have nothing to do with it. That our God is the one who gets all glory and everything. They would love to pray with you. Uh, there's offering boxes on the side wall in the back. We give because God gave so much to us. Giving is simply part of our worship. So we give the opportunity every week. And there's some food and stuff in the back. You guys are invited to grab something to eat, mingle, meet some other people, and restore relationship, live in a relationship with each other in the community that God calls us to so that we can be a people who truly scatter. That we, that we understand this, this great idea that God saves us, not for the purpose of having us become a little clique and live in a little bomb shelter, but that we live outside of these walls in a way that expresses God's grace and God's mercy to everybody. Because God has sought us, we should seek others as well. And we should love others the way our God loves us. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that we would understand the great depth of understanding that you coming and saving us means that our lives would be different because we understand your grace and your mercy. And that we would in turn live lives that not only bring you great glory, but lives that are touching other lives around us. That we wouldn't be confined to our, to our own little world and our own little group of friends, but we would understand that you have called us to something bigger and greater. And that as a God who comes and rescues his people, you will knock down the Lego towers in our hearts that keeps us separated from others. And you will call us to go and scatter and spread your name and your fame everywhere. Because your love is extravagant. Your love is greater and deeper than we will ever know. And throughout the course of eternity... We will constantly be plumbing the depths of who you are as our great God. And I ask that even beginning today, we'd understand that love a little bit better. And that we would then walk in humility and learn how to truly be a blessing to the world around us. Like you call us to. Thank you for loving us the way that you do. Please teach us how to love you back. Amen.